Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From room 20-2. 202 of the Conrad Hotel, a, a subsidiary of Resorts World International here in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I'm your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, just landed moments ago, really just arrived in Las Vegas. And as soon as I got to my room, really the first thing I'm doing is opening up my laptop and recording a brand new episode for you heathens because the next few days are going to be jam-packed and uh, possibly depressing and I don't want to have to bother again. So I'm getting this off my plate right now. Now, the question naturally arises, Michael, Ian Black, what the hell are you doing in Las Vegas? Are you doing stand-up comedy there? No. Are you doing the state tour there? No. So what are you doing there, Michael? Is this related to some sort of a bachelor party? No, nothing of the sort. I am here as part of PokerStar's Big Game, the Big Game Show, which was a poker show that aired, I want to say, like seven, eight years ago. And It was all about playing poker for high stakes. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Michael, you don't have any money to play poker with. And that is exactly correct. And yet, I am. I will be playing high stakes poker here at Resorts World this coming, today is Monday, this coming Thursday. Then I will, when I finish with that, I will get on a 6 a.m. flight and head to Boston to do some stand-up shows. Now, when I say high stakes poker, what do I mean? Here's what it means, and I'm going to be a little bit vague about this for reasons that are political. But basically what's happening is I will be sitting down at a poker table with $50,000 worth of chips in front of me. 
These are not, this is, these are not metaphorical dollars. These are actual literal dollars, 50,000 of them. And I will be playing high stakes poker for, oh, probably, I don't know, seven, eight hours, something like that. And uh, against some poker professionals and uh, at least, I want to say two non-poker professionals and then the third non-poker professional is me. So half the table will be pros, half the table will be people like me, amateurs, and I will be doing everything in my power not to lose $50,000 and hopefully to win. Now you might be thinking, but that doesn't sound possible. If you're playing against poker pros, how do you expect to win? Well, the beautiful thing about poker, friends, is there's a little thing called variance. What's variance? It's just a fancy word for luck. I can get lucky. Doesn't mean I will. I'm pegging my odds here in Las Vegas of walking away from that table with more than the $50,000 I sat down with at about 30%. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good investment, Michael. Well, again, I'm going to be a little bit vague about all of this. And trust me when I say it's an excellent investment. So the next time we talk, I will know what the results of that poker session are. But it's conceivable I could walk away with a lot of money in my, in my hand, you know, if I get lucky. Speaking of getting lucky, and you knew I was going <laughs> to turn the tables on you, didn't you? You knew it was coming, and here it is. Speaking of getting lucky, we got some things going on in the world of Clyde Griffiths and Hortense, his crush. You know, last time we, we talked, we'd just begun a new chapter, and... Clyde is, oh, mulling, I guess, sexual politics regarding his sister, regarding Hortense Briggs, his crush, and Hortense herself. We have entered her mind a little bit, and we're starting to understand her wants, her needs, her desires a little bit. She wants the type of boy for whom she really cared and was always seeking, and was always seeking was one who would sweep away, basically sweep her off her feet, even against herself, meaning against her own will, to yield to him, she wants to be ravished. That's what she wants. Now, you know, in the last episode, I sort of described that as a rape fantasy. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tone that down a little bit and say it's a ravishment fantasy, you know? The good girl being taken by the pirate. That's what she wants. She wants to be Linda, Linda Ronstadt in The Pirates and Penzance. And uh, she wants Kevin Klein to come in there and sweep her off her goddamn feet and not take no for an answer. And Clyde, I'm sorry, just isn't that guy, you know? Clyde's a nice kid. Went behind the ears, as we have so often said, trying to figure out his way in this world, trying to delicately plot a course that will take him to the highest reaches that he can aspire. But, of course, on the way, there are certain minefields that he has to... Traverse, Hortense Briggs, I suppose, is one of those minefields. So we've uh, entered her mind a little bit, and perhaps we will see what she thinks of him as we pick up Chapter 14 in American Tragedy. In fact, she was constantly wavering between actual like and dislike of him, meaning of Clyde. 
and in consequence, he was in constant doubt as to where he stood, a state which was very much relished by her, and yet which was never permitted to become so fixed in his mind as to cause him to give her up entirely. After some party or dinner or theater to which she had permitted him to take her, and throughout which he had been particularly tactful, not too assertive, she could be as yielding and enticing in her mood as the most ambitious lover would have liked. And this might last until the evening was nearly over, when suddenly, and at her own door or the room or house of some girl with whom she was spending the night, she would turn, and without rhyme or reason, endeavor to dismiss him with a mere hand clasp or a thinly flavored embrace or kiss. At such times, if Clyde was foolish enough to endeavor to force her to yield the favors he craved, she would turn on him with the fury of a spiteful cat, would tear herself away, developing for the moment, seemingly, an intense mood of opposition, which she could scarcely have explained to herself. Its chief mental content appeared to be one of opposition to being compelled by him to do anything. And because of his infatuation and his weak overtures due to his inordinate fear of losing her, he would be forced to depart, usually in a dark and despondent mood. I have been, Clyde, in this situation in my early years. I remember these kinds of encounters with a gal whom you fancied, whom I fancied, and I could not get a read. Not, no particular girl is even coming to mind. I just feel like this was such a familiar condition for me to be residing in. And the way I was raised, you know, in my lesbian feminist household, it would have been anathema, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation of the word, to, to force myself, you know, to, or, or to persist beyond the boundaries of what I thought to be good taste. And I get it. I get that kind of like, you know, you like the girl. It's obvious you like her, but it's not obvious that she likes you. Is she just stringing you along? And, and if so, why? why? Why would she do that? Why would she be so cruel? And the fact of the matter is because she's young too. And no, she does, she's not that crazy about Clyde Griffiths or in the case of the girls that I liked, crazy about me and who can blame them. She's not that crazy about Clyde Griffiths, but she loves the attention. She loves that glint in his eye. She loves that he loves her, and she does not wish to sacrifice that, because that is what she craves. She craves his admiration. She craves his desire. A little bit like Arabella, again, from uh, Jude the Obscure. We, we see this time and again. Authors making note of the way young girls can sometimes behave towards suitors. It is immature, yes, but we forgive them their immaturity because we understand the deliciousness of being wanted even when we do not want in return. So Clyde is suffering, and who can blame him? But so keen was her attraction for him that he could not long remain away, but must be going about to where most likely he would encounter her. Indeed, for the most part these days, and in spite of the peculiar climax which had eventuated in connection with Esta, he lived in a keen, sweet 
and sensual dream in regard to her. If only she would really come to care for him. At night, in his bed at home, he would lie and think of her, her face, the expressions of her mouth and eyes, the lines of her figure, the motions of her body in walking or dancing, and she would flicker before him as upon a screen. In his dreams, he found her deliciously near him, pressing against him, her delightful body all his. And then in the moment of crisis, when seemingly she was about to yield herself to him completely, he would awake to find her vanished, in illusion only. Well, yeah, figure it out, dude. Figure out what it means. It means exactly what it says it means. She done wants you, kid. Let it go. Or better, you don't even have to let her go. Just ignore her for like a month. Just act like she doesn't even exist for like a month and see if her interest isn't piqued. My friend, I suspect it will be. That's how you get a gal like that. You act not interested. Then suddenly she'll find her own interest. And she'll come around, you'll go out again, and then she'll realize, oh yeah, you're a drip. You're a drip, Clyde. Sorry to put it so bluntly. Yet there were several things in connection with her which seemed to bode success for him. In the first place, like himself, she was part of a poor family, the daughter of a machinist and his wife, who up to this very time had achieved very little more than a bare living. From her childhood, she had had nothing, only such goo jaws. God damn it, we've seen this word before, and I know I looked it up before. I always want to say jew jaws, but I don't think that's right. All right, research machine. Here we go. <sighs> Let's hear it. Gugaw. What? Gugaw. 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 I, I don't. I really don't care for the way you're pronouncing that, sir. Gugaw. Gugaw. Fine. Gugaw. She hadn't had. Only such gewgaws, gewgaw, gewgaws, and fripperies as she could secure for herself by her wits. And so low had been her social state until very recently that she had not been able to come in contact with anything better than butcher and baker boys, the rather commonplace urchins and small-job aspirants of her vicinity. Yet even here she had early realized that she could and should capitalize her looks and charm, and had. Not a few of these had even gone so far as to steal in order to get money to entertain her. Well, let's think about this from her point of view for a moment, as Dreiser is encouraging us to do. Here she is. A pretty girl from a poor family, and she understands that her looks and charm can elevate her status in this world, and that is what she wants. So when she is evaluating a suitor, however charming, however ready to part with cash on her behalf, she is surely sizing up his prospects in this larger world. Is this somebody who can rise and in rising take her with him? Now, look. We understand the sexism inherent in this, however, this is 1925 again. 
The career opportunities for her are somewhat limited. We can guess that her education was stalled or incomplete. And we can guess that she is trying to find her own way the same exact, in the same exact manner as Clyde is trying to find his. Here they are, two aspirants, two strivers, using their wits, using whatever tools the good Lord gave them to make their way in this world. And they just might not be right for each other. But the fact that we're lingering over this relationship for so long makes me think, of course, something is going to happen between them. Something probably not very good. Maybe she'll get knocked up too, although I doubt it. It doesn't seem Dreiser's style to have two female characters knocked up in the span of 50 pages, but who knows? Let's keep reading and find out. After reaching the age where she was old enough to go to work, and thus coming in contact with the type of boy and man in whom she was now interested, she was beginning to see that without yielding herself too much, but enacting discreetly, she could win a more interesting equipment than she had before. I don't know what that means. She could win a more interesting equipment. Meaning a, like a companion? I don't know what that means. Only so truly sensual and pleasure-loving was she that she was by no means always willing to divorce her self-advantages from her pleasures. On the contrary, she was often troubled by a desire to like those with whom she sought to use and, per contra, not to obligate herself to those whom she could not like. Well, now we're seeing a glimpse of her that is perhaps a touch softer. Here she is, cold and calculating, but unable to close her heart. And that is redemptive, don't you think? Well, why don't we take a little break? Back in a moment, here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
back on Obscure, getting to know our female character here a little bit, Hortense Briggs, no longer just a just a frilly, silly thing. Now she is a young woman with hopes and aspirations of her own. She is Machiavellian. She is a striver. She is Arabella. But she is better than Arabella because she's not purely an empty-headed vassal. We already like her better. And perhaps that says something about Dreiser, willing to imbue this female character with a soul, you know, with some complicated internal life. In Clyde's case, liking him but a little, she still could not resist the desire to use him. She liked his willingness to buy her any little thing in which she appeared interested, a bag, a scarf, a purse, a pair of gloves, anything that she could reasonably ask or take without obligating herself too much. And yet from the first, in her smart, tricky way, she realized that unless she could bring herself to yield to him, at some time or other offer him the definite reward with which she knew he craved, she could not hold him indefinitely. Okay, so now we're understanding a little bit of the calculations that are going on in her brain. How much does she need to get give versus how much can she get? It is a purely capitalistic equation. One thought that stirred her more than anything else was that the way Clyde appeared to be willing to spend his money on her, she might easily get some quite expensive things from him. A pretty and rather expensive dress, perhaps, or a hat, or even a fur coat such as was then being shown and worn in the city. To say nothing of gold earrings or a wristwatch, all of which she was constantly and enviously eyeing in the different shop windows. One day, not so long after Clyde's discovery of his sister, Esta, Hortense, walking along Baltimore Street near its junction with 15th, the smartest portion of the shopping section of the city, at the noon hour, with Doris Trine, another shop girl in her department store, saw in the window of one of the smaller and less exclusive fur stores of the city a fur jacket of beaver that to her viewed from the eye point of her own particular build, coloring, and temperament, was exactly what she needed to strengthen mightily her very limited personal wardrobe. It was not such an expensive coat, worth possibly a hundred dollars, but fashioned in such an individual way as to cause her to imagine that, once invested with it, her own physical charm would register more than it ever had. Moved by this thought, she paused and exclaimed, Oh, isn't that just the classiest, darlingest little coat you ever saw? And do look at those sleeves, Doris. She clutched her companion violently by the arm. Look at the collar and the lining and those pockets. Oh, dear. She fairly vibrated with the intensity of her approval and delight. Oh, isn't that just too sweet for words? and the very kind of coat I've been thinking of since I don't know when. Oh, you pity sing. You pity sing. S-I-N-G. Oh, you pity sing. I don't know what that means. Oh, you pity sing. She exclaimed affectedly, thinking all at once as much of her own pose before the window and its effect on the passerby as of the coat before her. 
Oh, if I could only have oo, apostrophe, oo. I imagine that means you. I have no idea what that means. Oh, if I could only have oo. <laughs> All right. One, one nice thing about this book is uh, no footnotes, you know. I can't go to the back and find these things out. She clapped her hands admiringly while Isidore Rubinstein, the elderly son of the proprietor, who was standing somewhat out of the range of her gaze at the moment, noted the gesture and her enthusiasm and decided forthwith that the coat must be worth at least 25 or $50 more to her anyhow in case she inquired for it. The firm had been offering it at 100 Oh, ha, he grunted. But being of a sensual and somewhat romantic turn, he also speculated to himself rather definitely as to the probable trading value, affectionately speaking, of such a coat. What, say, would the poverty and vanity of such a pretty girl as this cause her to yield for such a coat? Wait, what? Being of a sensual and... Okay, hold on, because I feel like I'm reading between lines here that may not exist, and I, I'm a little concerned. Being of a sensual and somewhat romantic turn, he also speculated to himself rather definitely as to the probable trading value. The trading value makes me think affectionately speaking of such a coat, what say with the poverty and vanity? He's, he wants, he wants to, he wants to, he, he wants to trade the coat for sex. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. I hope that's not the case. I mean, I'm a little bit scandalized if that's the case, but my God. In the meantime, however, Hortense, having gloated as long as her noontime hour would permit, had gone away, still dreaming and satiating her flaming vanity by thinking of how devastating she would look in such a coat. But she had not stopped to ask the price. Hence, the next day, feeling that she must look at it once more, she returned, only this time alone, and yet with no idea of being able to purchase it herself. On the contrary... She was only vaguely revolving the problem of how, assuming that the coat was sufficiently low in price, she could get it. At the moment, she could think of no one. But seeing the coat once more, and also seeing Mr. Rubenstein Jr. inside eyeing her in a most propitiatory and genial manner, she finally ventured in. You like the coat, eh? <laughs> I don't feel like I got the voice right. Wait, hold on. You like the coat, eh? Was Rubenstein's ingratiating comment as she opened the door. Well, that shows you have good taste, I'll say. That's one of the knobbiest little coats we've ever had to show in this store yet. Real beauty, that. And how it would look on such a beautiful girl as you. He took it out of the window and held it up. I seen you when you was looking at it yesterday. A gleam of greedy admiration was in his eye. And noting this, and feeling that a remote and yet not wholly unfriendly air would win for more consideration and courtesy than a more intimate one, Hortense merely said, Yes, yes indeed, and I said right away, There's a girl that knows a really swell coat when she sees it. The flattering unction soothed in spite of herself. Look at that, look at that, went on Mr. Rubenstein, turning the coat about, 
and holding it before her. Where in Kansas City will you find anything to equal that today? Look at this silk lining here. Genuine Mallinson silk and these slant pockets and the buttons. You think those things don't make a different looking coat? There ain't another one like it in Kansas City today. Not one, and there won't be. We designed it ourselves and we never repeat our models. We protect our customers. Now come back here. He led the way to a triple mirror at the back. It takes the right person to wear a coat like this to get the best effect out of it. Let me, let me try it on you. And by the artificial light, Hortense was now privileged to see how really fetching she did look in it. She cocked her head and twisted and turned and buried one small ear in the fur while Mr. Rubenstein stood by, eyeing her with not a little admiration and almost rubbing his hands. There now, he continued, look at that. What do you say to that, eh? Didn't I tell you it was the very thing for you? A find for you, a pickup. You'll never get another coat like that in this city. If you do, I'll make you a present of this one. He came very near, extending his plump hands, palms up. Well, I must say it does look smart on me, commented Hortense, her vainglorious soul yearning for it. I can wear anything like this, though. She twisted and turned the more, forgetting him entirely and the effect her interest would have on his cost price. Then she added, How much is it? Well... It's really a $200 coat, began Mr. Rubenstein artfully. Then, noticing a shadow of relinquishment pass swiftly over Hortense's face, he added quickly, That sounds like a lot of money, but of course, we don't ask so much for it down here. $150 is our price, but if that coat was at Jarrick's, that's what you'd pay for it and more. We haven't got the location here, we don't have to pay the high rents, but it's worth every cent to $200. Why, I think that's a terrible price to ask for. Just awful, exclaimed Hortense sadly. Oh, well, I didn't really. That was more angrily than sadly, so let's try sadly. Well, I think that's a terrible price to ask for it. Just awful, exclaimed Hortense sadly, beginning to remove the coat. She was feeling as though life were depriving her of nearly all that was worthwhile. Why, at Briggs, Biggs and Becks, they have lots of three-quarter mink and beaver coats for that much, and classy styles, too. Maybe, maybe, but not that coat, insisted Mr. Rubenstein stubbornly. Just look at it again. Look at the collar. You mean to say, you can find a coat like that up there? If you can, I'll buy the coat for you and sell it to you again for a hundred dollars. Actually, this is a special coat. It's copied from one of the smartest coats that was in New York last summer before the season opened. It has class. You won't find no coat like this coat. Oh, well. Just the same, $150 is more than I can pay, commented Hortense dolefully. At the same time, slipping on her old broadcloth jacket with the fur collar and cuffs and edging toward the door. And I feel like, okay, so she's drawn her line in the sand. And now what's this cat going to do? Wait. You like the coat? Wisely observed Mr. Rubenstein after deciding that even $100 was too much for her purse unless it could be supplemented by some man's. It's really a $200 coat. I'm telling you that straight. Our regular price is $150. But if you could bring me... 
$125 since you want it so much. Well, I'll, I'll let you have it for that. And that's like finding it. A stunning-looking girl like you oughtn't to have no trouble in finding a dozen fellows who would be glad to buy that coat and give it to you. I know I would. If I thought you'd be nice to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know I would. If I thought you'd be nice to me, he said. And, uh, well, that's the opening. Let's see if she walks through. He beamed ingratiatingly up at her. And Hortense, sensing the nature of the overture and resenting it from him, drew back slightly. At the same time, she was not wholly displeased by the compliment involved, but she was not coarse enough, as yet, to feel that just anyone should be allowed to give her anything. Indeed not. It must be someone she liked, or at least someone that was enslaved by her. <laughs> she was not coarse enough as of yet. I mean, that is some foreshadowing, don't we think? Don't we suspect? She understands she is approaching her full bloom, perhaps when the rose has faded somewhat. She will be coarse enough. And yet, even as Mr. Rubenstein spoke, and for some time afterwards, her mind began running upon possible individuals, favorites, who, by the necromancy of her charm for them, might be induced to procure this coat for her. Charlie Wilkins, for instance, he of the Orphea Cigar Store, who was most certainly devoted to her after his fashion, but a fashion, however, which did not suggest that he might do much for her without getting a good deal in return. And then there was Robert Kane, another youth, very tall, very cheerful, and very ambitious in regard to her, who was connected with one of the local electric company's branch offices. But his position was not sufficiently lucrative, a mere entry clerk. And so, and he was too saving, always talking about his future. And again, there was Bert Gettler. So we've gone from Charlie Wilkins to Robert Kane to Bert Gettler. Three before she even, her mind even alights on Clyde, and maybe there'll be a fourth and fifth. And then there was Bert Gettler the youth who had escorted her to the dance the night Clyde first met her, but who was little more than a giddy-headed dancing soul, one not to be relied upon in a crisis like this. Yes, this is a crisis, Hortense. He was only a shoe salesman, probably $20 a week, and most careful with his pennies. But there was Clyde Griffiths, the person who seemed to have real money and to be willing to spend it on her freely. So ran her thoughts swiftly at the time. But could she now, she asked herself, offhand, inveigle him into making such an expensive present as this? She had not favored him so very much, had for the most part treated him indifferently. Hence, she was not sure by any means. Nevertheless, as she stood there, debating the cost and the beauty of the coat, the thought of Clyde kept running through her mind, and all the while, Mr. Rubenstein stood looking at her, vaguely sensing, after his fashion, the nature of the problem that was confronting her. Well, little girl, he finally observed, I see you'd like to have this coat, all right. 
and I'd like to ha I'd like to have you have it too. It's an awkward sentence, but fine. And now I'll tell you what I'll do. And better than that, than that I can't do and wouldn't for nobody else. Not a person in this city. Bring me $115 anytime within the next few days, Monday or Wednesday or Friday, if the code is still here, and you can have it. I'll do even better. I'll save it for you. How's that? Until next Wednesday or Friday. More than that, no one would do for you, now would they? He smirked and shrugged his shoulders and acted as though he were indeed doing her a great favor. And Hortense, going away, felt that if only, only she could take that coat at $115, she would be capturing a marvelous bargain. Also, that she would be the smartest dressed girl in Kansas City beyond the shadow of a doubt. If only she could in some way get $115 before next Wednesday or Friday. And that is the end of chapter 14. Very good. We'll leave it there. I was kind of racing, you know, to get it done. I'm about to meet a friend at a chop house, just like Frizzell's. It's called Cleaver here in Las Vegas. Never been there. He's kind of, he's a poker buddy of mine. He's He's a fellow named uh, Brad Owen, and if you look up Brad Owen, what you will discover is that he is one of the most popular, if not the most popular, poker vlogger in these United States of America, has made his career as a poker vlogger, poker player, and now card room owner. He co-owns The Lodge in Austin, Texas. Anyway, we're going to get together, have ourselves some chops. On me, by the way, I'm taking him out to dinner, and his gal pal who I've yet to meet. So we can reflect on Hortense, you know, in her wily ways, and we can reflect on Clyde Griffiths and his, you know, gullibility and the sexual politics and the politic politics and the way women are subjugated here, forced to use their charms and wiles to get what they want. Hortense Briggs, yes, she works at the department store, but she will never be able to accrue enough money to buy herself a fur coat like that hanging in the window there at a lesser shop in Kansas City. No, sirree, she will not. But Clyde, who knows? He always seems to have a few bucks on him, more than that. The boy practically seems to be a money fountain. What comes in goes out. And these days, more and more of it going out into Hortense Briggs' pocket. So, I guess we'll find out what happens with that coat and how much exactly she will yield herself to him. Maybe she'll even let him go to second, you know? That would be exciting. Touch a little booby. Clyde, I'm rooting for you, kid, but I'm telling you, this chick is, a, is at best a yellow flashing light. And really, if we, if we squint our eyes, we see that that light is red. We'll leave it there, and we will uh, pick it up again on another lip-smacking episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgerin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks.